Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to CHSR HealthyLife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. CHSR HealthyLife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. You're tuned in to real-time relationships. Enter the world of successful relationships. You'll get insider tips on how to navigate the perils and pitfalls of modern dating and up-close-and-personal real-life stories you can relate to from Dr. Camarado's personal clients. Dr. Marianne Camarado is a relationship expert, author, and media personality who continues to enjoy her own long-term successful relationship. And now, here's Real-Time Relationships with Dr. Marianne Camarado. Welcome to Real-Time Relationships. I'm Marianne Camarado. I'm so glad you're here. hope that you're enjoying the new format of our program and checking out the rest of our podcast at MarianneCamarado.com. Today, we're going to be talking about and exploring sexual fluidity um, when it comes to sexuality these days. So many of us are confused but also intrigued by the shifting definitions and identities. So what exactly does that mean to be sexually fluid? We're going to find out today. I've invited a guest, colleague, and dear friend. Uh, we're going to call him Joseph because that's his name. He's going to be joining us this hour um, talking about and exploring this territory Starting with some of the basics, which I'm going to just bring to the fore right away before I invite Joseph into the conversation. A little bit of background um, when I was researching uh, what it means to be sexually fluid. This term first gained popularity after the publication of a book maybe many of you have read. In 2008, Sexual Fluidity, Understanding Women's Love and Desire. Uh, researcher Lisa Diamond wrote this book. She's a psychologist, at least was at the time at the University of Utah. But generally speaking, sexual fluidity uh, refers to the idea that a person's attraction or their identity, sexual identity, uh, bisexual, gay, heterosexual, etc., it changes over time or can change over time, which is not a new idea. More than 70 years ago, uh, Alfred Kinsey, uh, if you remember the Kinsey Report and the Kinsey Institute and all that, they noticed this uh, proclivity when they interviewed uh, hundreds, maybe even thousands of Americans about their uh, sexuality, their lives, their experiences, etc. And it wasn't unusual for those folks to name that their attractions um, with uh, other folks were not just with one sex, but were with both sexes. And there are a couple of beautifully written scenes um, in a film uh, that really uh, looks at Kinsey's work, uh, which you might want to take a look at in the future. Um, In any event, based on the science behind this exploration is certainly there. Today we're going to be taking a more psychological, spiritual, somatic inquiry into what's happening in our culture uh, through the eyes of our guest today. Joseph, welcome to the program. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Thanks for having me, Marianne. 
Yes. Well, this is something that you and I talked about early on. We share a love for somatic inquiry, somatic healing work, and you're a practitioner in your own right. Um, and I remember early on when we met and were having a fairly intimate conversation, you you brought some things to light for me around sexuality in terms of the way we name um, or language someone's orientation. It actually was startling to me. I had said something that was potentially offensive, and you were trying to help me. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but essentially you said there's something like 99 ways that we can identify our sexuality. Do you sort of remember that conversation? Vaguely, vaguely. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, I know that there's a lot of folks that are confused and curious and intrigued by this idea of being sexually fluid. Can you talk a little bit about what you know about in terms of the available um, ways to identify? Like how, many, how many ways are you aware of to identify one's sexuality? You know, I think it's constantly evolving and growing and identities are changing. So I, I wouldn't even be able to place a number on it other than it's so unique to the individual and there are new terms constantly popping up uh, mm -hmm. around how one uh, wants to identify or feels like they identify. Mm -hmm. What are some of the names you think are really common and then some that aren't as common? Because I looked up, there were about 102 that I found. Mm -hmm. I think the ones that I hear most common would be some of the basics. We have heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual. We have people who identify as pansexual, which means that it's about the individual, not so much their gender or their expression, but it's about the feeling they have when they're in the presence of this other uh, human. Um, we'll have people identify as queer, um, asexual, and the list goes on, but those are some of the most common ones that we hear uh, today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, what do we what do we know about this? The word fluidity gave me such a feeling when I when I first heard it. It gave me a sense of freedom, like I get to choose, right? I can choose yeah. one or both or all, and no one can tell me what I am. I didn't even get to the what I am. Right? Yeah. I just yeah. love the idea <laughs> that I got to choose, right? Don't tell yeah. me when, you know, like when people are having a baby, what color do you bring, blue or pink? Yeah. Because there's so much marketing and consumerism that supports this, not only sexuality, but gender, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah. how do you feel about that for yourself, having choice, and when did you first notice that you did? Well, um, a couple parts in that question. I think... I'll start with when I first started to notice and experience my own sexuality. And it, I was a late bloomer um, growing up, but it was in high school. I ran cross-country, so I did sports after school. And during cross-country season, it was also water polo season. And I remember, I was probably a sophomore in high school at this point, and I remember getting done with practice, getting ready to get on the bus to go home. As I'm waiting there and the, the, the guys and the girls were getting out of water polo practice, I saw this... Uh, woman Maggie walk out and we were in the same class I thought oh I kind of looked at her in a way that I didn't necessarily look at her before and then two strides behind her this guy Tim walked out and I thought oh feeling arousal and attraction toward them both and at that moment feeling confused given the fact that you know we are so conditioned to have to choose a box to check of am I this or am I that and not having a whole lot of experience growing up in central rural California, you know, I only knew what I knew at that point. Mm -hmm. And so 
I remember feeling all of that and being confused at the same time. And as I aged, trying to find myself in a box so I could fit into some sort of norm, right? So I could mm-hmm. at least feel safe within myself and safe within others. And that has definitely changed as I've gotten older as I come back to um, I identify as queer. And for me, that means that it's not necessarily about the gender of the individual, although when I think about sexuality, there's who we're emotionally attracted to and who we're physically attracted to. And for some people, those are one and the same. But for me, there's a discrepancy in those based on someone's gender or expression. And identifying as queer gives me that sense of freedom to feel the arousal and the attraction to whoever that person is based on various stimuli, based on various sensations, I feel. Um, Yeah. So could you give me an example? So I'm conjuring... Uh, that you're emotionally maybe attracted to, I'm assuming, women, but maybe physically or sexually attracted to men. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So if I think about a spectrum, and as you name, mostly physically attracted to men, I'm physically attracted to some women, and I'm physically attracted to some other genders. Those other genders could be someone who identifies as trans, trans man, trans woman. It could be someone who identifies as genderqueer, where they're not fitting within the binary. When I think about or feel into my emotional attraction, yeah, I feel like I'm mostly emotionally attracted to women. I'm emotionally attracted to some men, and I'm emotionally attracted to some other genders. So it becomes, if I was to look at a spectrum, if if my physical attraction is leaning more toward men, but yet I'm not as emotionally attracted to them, there's some little glitch in my system when I'm trying to align this desire for partnership Mm -hmm. and how that might actually play out. And... Mm -hmm. I think that sense of fluidity means how do I engage with others who have a sense of fluidity or at least comfort with others who are fluid, even if they may not experience themselves as such. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly when you were younger, it was a different time, although lucky you, you were in California, right? Mm-hmm. Good place to be if you're going to be exploring sexuality <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 30 years ago or whenever that was. Mm-hmm. Um, there was probably, um, I would imagine, and you even said it yourself, a good deal of conflict and confusion that you named. Um, how did that play out with your friends and your family then, and how is it different now? Well, it wasn't something that I was really vocal about or even expressed in my teens to 20s. And I knew when I was coming out which was in my late 20s, so again, feeling like such a late bloomer, it was never about my family accepting me. I knew hands down that that would, that would be the case. They would accept me wholeheartedly and unconditionally, which is what the case was. It was more about me accepting myself and accepting myself in that place of maybe being confused or uncertain or being unknown and moving away from having to label it. Now, having then gotten out of the Central Valley and lived in other you know, places in California that were progressive, uh, it wasn't hard for me to find other, uh, you know, friends or other colleagues that would welcome me and accept me as is. So it really came down to my own acceptance of myself. And what a blessing, because I don't have one of those horror stories of coming out that we hear so often from young people. Mm-hmm. What do you, thank you for that, Joseph. What do you count for your, um, I would call it a sort of a, Dirty inquiry, a steady, um, a steady line on uh, that kind of interior uh, focus. 
Right. It, it sounds to me when I listen to you like that there was there was uh, there's always been some relationship with your interior sense of yourself when it comes to your sexual identi- identity. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you what do you attribute that to? Do you feel were there influences in your life that supported that? Did that sort of come? Did it, you know, when you were popped out into the world, did that was that part of the deal, part of Joseph's DNA? How, how do you account for that? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple different things. I think one is the natural essence of who I am and this life that I'm living, and part of it is also having grown up as a cowboy, so being with animals in a physical way, um, you know, using our bodies on the ranch, it's hard to escape one's sexuality when your body is still alive because you're using it in ways that sensation becomes a part of the everyday experience and especially when you're riding horses and you're on a horse there's that element of you're sitting on a saddle right your legs are spread there's sensation that is naturally there with movement happening underneath you uh the inquiry came blessed because of my mother who was a curious human and always had us kind of in that reflective process maybe not necessarily around sexuality but around who we were as spiritual beings and for some of us, sexuality and spirituality are kind of one and the same. Wow, that's incredible. Good <laughs> 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 to see your mom. Yes. Right? Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember my mother talking to us about sex and sexuality. Um, if we brought it up, she seemed fairly open. And I always noticed uh, that there was a kind of sense of shame. I look back and I can see what part of that came from wound, but what part of it sort of came from the cultural taboo, sort of the feeling that was sort of in the air, an inherited uh, cultural sort of, yeah, taboo. How is it that you avoided um, noticing that, or if you didn't, how did you, how did you take that into account um, as part of your inquiry? I think it's hard to escape any of the taboos or the sense of um, internalized shame that comes from sexuality. And I think because of that self-inquiry and the practices that I have on the dance floor or having been a long member of attending Esalen Institute in Big Sur for the last probably 16 years and being in various workshops and environments that allowed me to kind of be reflective, I think it allowed me to cultivate a relationship with my own shame, the parts of me that have internalized homophobia, the part that's still even at soon to be 41, those are still a part of my life, as they would be for anyone, and yet it's about the relationship I have with that imprint that might have been imprinted from long ago. And also having grown up during the AIDS crisis here in California, so close to San Francisco, there was levels of imprints that were put upon me before I even had an, a sexual identity. Okay. And so all of that plays into it, and I think it was not having such an attached narrative to that and really just being curious about it. Mm-hmm. What were some of the biggest consequences you've ever had to face as a result of choosing this path, being sexually fluid? Yeah, I don't know if it's so much as a choice as opposed to coming back to, like, it's in my DNA. I think it's the essence of who I am. And or honoring that, then. How about honoring that? Honoring that, yeah. That. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I think some of the consequences come from some people not understanding. And so, therefore, me having to, um, for lack of better words, like put a part of myself back in a closet. Uh, that's not so much the case now. I feel like living in the Bay Area, there is 
we're very progressive. There's a lot of fluidity in all forms of identity, not just sexuality. But I think having grown up and in certain situations, it's having to maybe not allow my whole self to the table. Um, that requires me to kind of put it away. Mm-hmm. Well, this program goes out all over the world. We have listeners in China and Australia and the U.K., and so, you know, we've got all kinds of folks right now uh, mm-hmm. listening in and asking themselves this question, what, what, what if and what happens when and all of this. So, so your inquiries are so valuable for folks out there who may not have made the decisions that you have or honored that interior voice uh, or inquiries about how they choose to express the truth about their sexuality or at least exploring or being curious the way you have, Joseph. Um, it's really quite a privilege. And yes. But the consequences are there. I can even say for a person, I feel like I'm fairly progressive-minded, I haven't explored my sexuality per se so much so where I've explored uh, the other uh, identities. Um, but I love, as I said earlier, having the choice. And it does feel like a privilege. But I know for me, even having conversations with certain people feels very threatening. So for me, my, one of the consequences for me is feeling like I contract around certain people and feel like I can't be open or truthful about my curiosity. So that's a, an yeah. ongoing consequence for me. Do you yeah. notice yeah. any of that for yourself? Because you work with kids, and we yeah. want to hear about that. But I'm curious how it's showing up, because I think the average person struggles with this. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of shame with it. And the problem with shame yeah. is that it makes us avoid things. And so, you know, there's a part of shame that we can start to break the power of it if we start to engage with it. And that comes back to what, who in our communities can we trust that we can be in this dialogue? Hopefully a lot of listeners are, have a therapist that they can go to and, and feel safe enough around and maybe the therapist is educated enough around it or at least open enough to be in those dialogues to help an individual kind of be with the inquiry. Um, but shame itself is it's just huge. And I think the way to break that power of shame is just by engaging it. And how do we not let it come to the, the shutdown system. And I know for me is whenever I start to feel, as you name that contraction, it's a moment of awareness for me to go, oh, okay, do I need to, do I need to verbalize something here to someone or to myself that might prevent that contraction from happening even further? Mm-hmm. And it's not that I have to then expand and open up really big and wide, but almost as if I can pause that contraction to, to get a better idea of what it is that's actually having me contract and for me to name it to myself or if I'm lucky enough to name it in the presence of another. Can you remember the last time that you felt that vulnerable and that shame come up in the recent past that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it, to be honest, as, as much as I dive into this inquiry, it's really quite often that I'll come into this. And it was just last week I was talking with a friend who I had not seen in a while, and and she was asking me about you know, if I was dating anyone, and, and I could feel that part of me, who she knows very well of my identity, but not necessarily maybe the, the fluidity that is becoming more and more present in my life. And so as I started to share with her, I could see her getting a little confused and, and wanting to put me, Joseph, in a box that she knew me in from before. And in doing so, I could feel the part of me wanting to hide 
that fluid to you. And I was going, and I could feel a little bit of guilt in that as to myself, of like, why am I doing that to myself? Am I doing it to protect her because she doesn't understand it? And then feeling levels of shame that came up. And once I noticed that, I was able to pause while I was in conversation with her and, and make a choice of, I can either continue further with this conversation with her and name what's happening, or I can let it just sit there and ride this conversation out. And because I have a history with her, I was able to name that and say, whew, I'm, I'm starting to get a little closed off here, and I'm wondering what we can maybe do to shift that. And I, you know, and so then we furthered into the conversation, but I could feel it in that moment, and it feels like it's, it's quite common that that happens, especially when I'm working with the young people where they're coming in with so much shame and maybe not necessarily confusion, but not sure how to name things, and we live in a culture where we have to name it. So when I feel like I have to name something is when all of a sudden there's a little bit of a shutdown comes in. Yeah, and you know what comes to mind when you were saying that, or I could feel it in my body, that sort of that posture of feeling my my activist, my advocacy sort of self coming out, uh, feeling protective, I guess, is what came Mm. up for me. And what I feel like is I... I feel like our culture has been so judgmental, so puritanical for a really long time, right? We've got all yeah. these patriarchal values, these very puritanical values that we've inherited, and it's been a long time coming for us to shed a lot of that inherited mythology, inherited values. Yeah. And as we break away from that, you know, you can feel the vestiges rise up in these seemingly benign you know, circumstances with a friend, someone you trust and love. And what occurs to me is, you know, as a a relationship specialist myself, you know, it it never escapes me really that we need each other. We're relational creatures. So, of course, we're we're on high alert when we feel somehow that something we're saying or doing is going to create some kind of separation or anything that will sever or rupture the relationship, right? So we're always in constant... You might not be aware of it, but that's what occurred to me when I was listening to you. This sort of like, oh, that that constant little antenna. Am I safe here? When we come back after the break, everybody, we're going to talk more with our guest, Joseph, about sexual fluidity and how that shows up in our culture, in the workplace, some more of the consequences that come along with that, and and the shifting cultural climate uh, when we get back right after these messages. Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in just a minute. Do you have relationship questions? I wish my past relationships didn't affect my relationships now to the point that I project them onto my partner. I'm perpetually single. What does that mean? You know, I've been single for 15 years and at this point I can hardly even imagine what intimacy and total connection would even feel like. The part of my relationship with a man that I've had in my life for so many years that keeps me here and present is that the relationship is not just about me, about us. We come in at it 50-50, and it feels so good when you can help that other person move forward, and they can help you. To get answers to your relationship questions, call in to Real-Time Relationships with Marianne Camarado every fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on HealthyLife.net. Radio your way. 
HealthyLife.net. everybody. Boy, am I glad you are here. This is a very timely conversation. It's been a long time coming. Sexual fluidity, what does it mean? It's causing confusion for some. It's intriguing for others. Uh, that's what we're talking about today here on the program. Our guest Joseph is joining us, uh, delving deeper into his psyche, his somatic lived experience. Um, Joseph, it's been great to have you share with us some of the intimate experiences you've had exploring your own sexuality, your own sexual identity, and how that's been challenging and also liberating for you. Um, one of the things I was thinking of during our brief break was some of the um, archetypal threats that exist, mm -hmm. right? They, they are very real still, and depending on where you're listening to the program in whatever country you're in, uh, some of these behaviors are considered illegal, uh, immoral, and so forth. So the consequences can be grave. So that we're even, uh, we have the privilege to have this conversation here in the United States doesn't mean there aren't consequences here, but in other places they, there are more severe consequences. So we really want to honor that. Uh, we appreciate your courage for even listening, for contemplating your own sexual identity, and for being part of the evolution and the inquiry, whatever position you take. So thanks for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, Joseph, we're talking a little bit about, you, you touched briefly on your work with, with young people. Tell us more about that and what you're seeing uh, looking through the, this lens with the young people you're working with. Yeah, so I teach high school, mostly juniors and seniors in San Francisco, and I'm seeing a lot of bravery, to be honest. And, again, it's a luxury and privilege that these young people have to live in an environment where sexuality has kind of been so progressive for so long. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easier for them, but they, they have more freedom to explore or at least name those things. But I'm, I'm seeing and experiencing a lot of freedom in them and a lot of bravery in naming what it is they're wanting to explore. And I find, as I named the, you know, some of the more common sexualities that they earlier in the program, one of them I hear a lot of these young people identify as, which is really fascinating to me, is they identify as pansexual, where they are really about connecting to the individual, which I think mm -hmm. is such a gift at such a young age to yeah. give yourself that freedom. And yet I also see it as almost like a safe term for them, that they don't have to put themselves in a box, so to speak. So it's kind of twofold. One, they have the sense of freedom to explore all that, and it's also safe for themselves that they don't have to normalize something in themselves and, and feel quite fixed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing interrelationally uh, among the young people versus when you were growing up? Hmm. Well, I think some of the things that they're experiencing that is a conflict is around the act of sex, and I think that has to do with the lack of uh, proper sex education in this country, uh, even here in California. And so they don't have the, the right questions to ask or even know what questions to ask or how to properly engage 
in sex or having a, a particular definition of sex, like, oh, sex means penetration, that's all we can do. And I think that's where there's a lot of conflict that comes up when they're wanting to relate with one another, feeling like, oh, we have to do this thing. Um, last night I was watching, interesting enough, this new uh, Netflix original movie called Alex True Love around a young man in high school who is coming into his own sexuality and the pressures that he's getting from his friends about having to have sex in a very traditional fashion. And him wanting to resist that, one, he's not quite sure who he's attracted to. And it was really, I could see a lot of my students in this character, and I thought, wow, this is exactly what my students are, are struggling with. Of, they maybe want to be sexual, but not in the traditional sense. And so that just goes to show the complexity of what sexuality even means, or the act of sex even means. And so I think that's the biggest conflict I see with these young people, is what they're seeing on TV or in media is much different than what they're actually feeling inside, and, and how do they honor it. Mm -hmm. Well, one of, that's a really great um, observation because one of the things I notice uh, or and continue to notice is this sense of, let's see, how would I name this? Uh, when we see television or programs, they're very tidy and they leave out the 20 three other hours of real life, right? Yes, yes. Right? We've condensed this long period of time typically into an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah. Leaving out the nuances, the long periods of consternation, of self-loathing, of confusion, of terror, of, yeah. uh, you know, rumination, all of those things. Uh, even asking someone uh, for a date uh, or, a, mm. or a phone number or however it is that we approach. I mean, these things can be, you know, socially debilitating, right? Yeah. Yeah. Never yeah. mind how do we move into the sexual act. So yeah. this is a really big topic that you're talking about here. And mm -hmm. now it's complicated by what does it even mean to have sex? Right? right. Never mind right. my sexual identity. I can feel yeah. you wanting to say something. <laughs> yeah, do it. Well, just, you know, that we, to kind of piggyback on what you're saying around sexuality and based on what we see in media is, you know, sexuality isn't just about our genitals or about having sex. It's a mix of so many different things. It's physical, it's chemical, it's emotional, it's intellectual, it's social, and it's cultural. And so that mix is so different, and it makes it unique to every single human being. Mm -hmm. And so when we actually come into contact within ourselves, these various aspects of what turns me on or what I'm aroused by, then if it doesn't fit into what I'm seeing in that hour and a half or so, uh, how do I even engage with what I'm sensing and feeling, which can be quite right. scary for a lot of people and life-threatening to some. Right, right. Absolutely. Particularly if you've got, which they say there are seven storylines in our culture that have been repeated over time and inherited unconsciously, right? Yeah. So you might have this interior conflict just at that level. Uh, that's in conflict with, like you said, your your inclination, your desire, or your curiosity. So it's so complex, so yeah. complex in there. And um, part of why we're doing this program is to see if we can create more spaciousness, more inquiry, more curiosity. Uh, what would you recommend to a young person listening right now who uh, is maybe struggling with, finding out for themselves uh, where they lie on the spectrum. Um, let's say they come from a more traditional kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. Well, 
for any teen or emerging adult, there's a book that I highly recommend. It's called Sex, the All-You-Need-To-Know Sexuality Guide to Get You Through Your Teens and Twenties by Heather Carina, C-O-R-I-N-N-A, and I believe she's based out of New York. And she um, has a wonderful website called Scarlet Teen, and it's about everything that we're talking about. So young people have a resource or a guidebook to, to have these inquiries with themselves and to know that they have someone out there who, whether they know her or not, can relate in some way. Beautiful. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk about that same inquiry regarding the adult population and how this is affecting our, our culture in the years to come in this particular political climate. We'll be back right after these messages, everybody. Sit tight. Back in just a minute. Do you have relationship questions? I wish my past relationships didn't affect my relationships now to the point that I project them onto my partner. I'm perpetually single. What does that mean? You know, I've been single for 15 years, and at this point, I can hardly even imagine what intimacy and total connection would even feel like. The part of my relationship with a man that I've had in my life for so many years that keeps me here and present is that the relationship is not just about me, about us. We come in at it 50-50 and it feels so good when you can help that other person move forward and they can help you. To get answers to your relationship questions, call in to Real Time Relationships with Marianne Camarado every fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on HealthyLife.net. All positive talk with a mature edge. HealthyLife.net. Time Relationships. I'm Marianne Camarada. We're talking about sexual fluidity, what that means, how that's affecting your life, uh, inviting you into an inquiry um, through the eyes, ears, heart, soul, and embodied experience of our guest today, Joseph. Uh, Joseph, before the break, we were talking about um, the invitation for young people uh, who've been maybe programmed by, let's say, the, the more traditional ideas around sexual identity. You um, offered them a really great book they can find online. And I, I want to ask the same question about the adult population, folks you know, who aren't considering themselves a young person anymore, moving into their late 20s and 30s and beyond. You know, how do we, if we have an inkling or that growing curiosity how do we move from there uh, deeper into our own inquiry into maybe exploring being sexually fluid mm-hmm. well i think there's a couple things one i would still highly recommend that book that i just referenced for young people <laughs> i think it in and of itself it just it gives us permission to get information and educate ourselves in ways that we weren't when we were younger um, and she does such a great job with that in the book. Another thing I would say is, you know, find a therapist who really is open and receptive to being present with you, or at least another 
adult whom you can trust to not have to give feedback, be that nice, silent witness to really receive uh, these inquiries that you're having within yourself. And if one is feeling safe enough with their own body, how I would invite them is how do they start to engage more with that? Is that going to the gym more? Is that going to a yoga class or a conscious dance floor? What are the ways that they can start to have a better understanding of how this body in which they inhabit um, feels and thinks and senses when it's aroused? Uh, and hopefully there's safe enough environments where they can go and do that. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Let, let's talk about the conversation around gender because it's almost it's almost impossible in some ways to exclude that conversation for me uh, just because so much of my sexual identity feels informed by you know my gender. So if I'm a woman, I'm supposed to like a guy. Right, and there's again uh, traditional consequences and rewards for for doing so. It wasn't even um, a question when I was growing up. If you had any feelings to the contrary, the consequences were pretty severe socially uh, and otherwise. Today, again, California not so much the case. In other cultures, it is. Uh, that being said, let's talk a little bit about the the gender uh, fluidity that's happening and how you see that. Uh, as it relates to the sexual fluidity? Hmm. Well, this is, this is another great question you're posing and another really complex one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, hmm. well, the thing about gender identity is that gender identity isn't anatomical. It's intellectual, it's psychological, and social. It's that it's how we identify with ourselves. And if we limit our sexuality and our attraction to others based on gender, then we're missing out on all the other aspects of what sexuality is. And Michael Cito, he's a psychologist up in Canada, and he has this great definition of how he defines sexual orientation. And he says, it's a stable tendency to preferentially orient in terms of attention, interest, attraction, and genital arousal to particular classes of sexual stimuli. So that hopefully gives someone permission to at least feel those things in the presence of of any gender, and it doesn't necessarily mean that one has to act on that. And, yes, there are certain genders that we might find ourselves more inclined to feel arousal around. And for me, it's, it's, it's really around the expression of their gender. Regardless of their gender identity, there's gender expression, how they present themselves to the world, which could be somewhat different than how they identify with themselves. But for me personally, that's the piece around gender that I become attracted to is how is this human expressing themselves in their movement, in their attire, in their presence, how they move through the world, that it doesn't matter to me what's between their legs as opposed to how are they showing up in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's different than gender, than our the sex we've been assigned at birth, right? The doctor sees our right. genitals and says, this is your gender. Well, gender's more than our genitals. Mm-hmm. So... Um, if we limit sexuality to just gender, then we're missing out on lots of other mm-hmm. um, exciting experiences that potentially could bring us aliveness. No, that was so beautifully said, Joseph. Um, what do you think accounts for the shifting view? At least it's coming to the fore. I'm not saying yeah. it hasn't been there, but what do you think accounts for the shifting views of sexuality in our culture right now, particularly in the West? Mm. I think we're seeing many more brave people who are are owning and accepting who it is that they experience themselves to be. And 
whether a lot of people feel like this or not, it's such a gift to the world that they're having this sense of comfort and bravery and self-confidence to do that. And it's not to say that they're probably not scared in doing so. So I think there's a shift in that. I also think that that shift just comes generationally. Um, you know, there's, you know, change is mostly due to generational shifts. So while young people's attitudes may differ from their parents, the point is that their attitudes remain different over time. So no matter what, the new generation is always going to feel and experience, in this case, gender and sexuality, different from the older generation, even as they age. So as progressive and fluid as I think I am and feel and experience myself to be now at 41, these young people are already going to kind of push the envelope. And whether I kind of get on their bandwagon or not, it's going to happen. So I think it's been a gradual shift that just happens generation after generation after generation as as more people resist these normative structures that we have created over time. And these oppressive normative structures, I would add, right? Because it's not like there's, like, celebrating who you really are. Oh, yes, please explore. (laughs) Right. 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 A very punitive, oppressive climate. So, yeah, hence hence the oppositional or polarization, right? Yeah. So it feels like a natural swing in some ways. Do you think think our political climate is... Supporting this, let's let's talk about that for for a moment. You know, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up. You know, this the the emerging feminine. Let's talk about mm-hmm. how that might be influencing this movement as well, or how it might be related in some way. Yeah, I think people are tired of being shut down. People are tired of being seen as other or less than. And unfortunately, we have a political climate that doesn't support all bodies and all genders. That's not to say that the entire political system um, is doing that, but those who are in power are not necessarily supportive of anyone who lives their life outside of these uh, these power dynamics, these structures that are in power. And so the more that we can be allies to various identities, whether that be race, gender, sexuality, class, ability, the more we can start to resist and give space for those others who have been oppressed for so long to kind of rise to the surface and have a voice and a safe enough, hopefully safe enough, uh, experience. But we're not supported politically um, as much to do so, unfortunately. Yeah, not yet. Yeah. Well, well, let's pose that question. Joseph, I, for the moment, in the world of all possibility with my magic wand, boom, yeah. you are a person of power that could make certain changes. Uh, in the world, whether that made you the emperor of the world or the president of the United States, you get to pick the hat you would wear. But what would what would you change, and why? Hmm. Well, that's a really big question. And you know, I come to this place of equality. I mean, who? Hopefully, anyone who comes into a power, a place of privilege like myself, would not want that. But you know, I think a lot of the things we're seeing, just in the sense of equal pay, we're not seeing that across the spectrum regarding genders. A lot, a lot of women in higher positions are still not getting paid as men. So how do we start to, uh, at least within the gender aspect, get equal pay and equal rights? Um, how is it that we start to have individuals have a choice over their own body? If we're talking about abortion or reproductive rights, how is it that the giving rights to the individual to choose for themselves, uh, regardless of religious background or political um, decisions? How is it that we start to give those who are of a different race enough of a platform so that they can feel safe enough. And that's, that's 
a larger conversation for another time, but how do we start to deconstruct these constructs mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. finding ways to do that? Beautiful. When we come back more with our guest, Joseph, and I want to talk about our creationist myth and the momentum of that and, and how we might want to argue the idea that this is just a genetic imperative and that we are uh, bucking that and it's unnatural, et cetera, when we get back. We're going to drop into that deep conversation right here on Real Time Relationships. Back in just a minute. Do you have relationship questions? I wish my past relationships didn't affect my relationships now to the point that I project them onto my partner. I'm perpetually single. What does that mean? You know, I've been single for 15 years, and at this point, I can hardly even imagine what intimacy and total connection would even feel like. The part of my relationship with a man that I've had in my life for so many years that keeps me here and present is that the relationship is not just about me, about us. We come in at 50-50 and it feels so good when you can help that other person move forward and they can help you. To get answers to your relationship questions, call in to Real Time Relationships with Marianne Camarado every fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on HealthyLife.net. Discover the world's largest anti-aging organization, Life Extension. For the best information, vitamins, and supplements, you just can't beat Life Extension. To start extending your life, go to the HealthyLife.net advertiser page and click on the Life Extension banner. Radio your way. HealthyLife.net. Real-time relationships. I'm Marianne Camarado. Uh, I really like having conversations about shadowy material. You know that about me, Joseph, and, <laughs> and and I think you like it. I know that I know that you'll go down the rabbit hole, and this is a, an invitation to do that so our our listeners can contemplate this very difficult inquiry that I'm about to pose. There is a polarity that exists. Uh, we don't need to name it because it comes in so many forms. We don't need to get specific, but, but basically it goes something like this. What we're talking about is unnatural, say some folks, that we are born a certain sex, we have an imperative, it's in our old brain, and that what we're talking about is disgusting, evil, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you want to say to that? I have something I'd like to share, but I'd like to hear um, what, what are your thoughts on this, and do you see this as a uh, prevailing uh, ideology or philosophy that's gaining momentum, or do you really think that we are going to make this shift uh, into a kind of egalitarian sexuality, if you will? Yeah, well... To give honor to the shadow here, I think the reality is we're going to continue to live in this life of polarity and paradox. I don't know if we'll ever get to this egalitarian state, given the fear that we 
live in constantly. Um, and we're also in a culture that has not given much honor to the body, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. religious practices, the body belongs to something else and not mm-hmm. ourselves. And so if we feel pleasure, however that is defined by the individual, then, right, that's been taught as forbidden and disgusting mm-hmm. and sick. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. how does that start to get unwired in a culture that it's been so pervasive in, especially in a lot of religious cultures? And and so I don't, I don't honestly believe that we'll get to this place of egalitarian. I think we're going to kind of be in this, not that we have to live it as either or, but we're going to be in this, this conversation much longer than maybe we would hope for. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some truth right there. I can resonate with that. Mm-hmm. You know, most revolutions, they say, take 50 years or more. This one seems huge and may not be seen in our lifetime, but we, we can feel the momentum of it. Yeah. I have a hopeful story I'd like to share, one that okay. I've actually um, gotten into this debate when I was far more reactive and a little bit more, um, I don't know, more of an activist, um, that archetypal part of me would come out more often. Uh, but I felt hopeful when I brought this up in a conversation when a, a, a person who identified as a male, very traditional male, said, and I'll paraphrase, that he, you know, it's, men just are the way they are. They need to spread their seeds, and that's just part of the way it is. You know, that phrase, the way it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in our DNA. Yeah. And I said, what did you have for lunch yesterday? And he looked at me and he's like, what are you talking about? I said, what did you have for lunch? He said, I had a sandwich at this deli I went at. I said, that's right. You went to the grocery store because here's what I know you didn't do. I know you didn't go to the nearest park or wildlife area sit on your haunches and wait for a squirrel to run by, leap on it, bite its head off, and let the blood drip down and have that squirrel for your lunch. Mm-hmm. And he just stared at me like, where are we going here? I just said, the point is, is your old brain, once upon a time, probably thought that was a good idea, right? That was the option. I'm hungry. This is what there is to eat. I don't want to die. I put sexuality of this very basic nature into that category, Joseph, that we actually have a frontal cortex for a reason now. We get to feel some kind of restraint on our impulses. We get to make choices. We get to move energy up into our higher centers. What do you think about that? Well, I would agree, and that story you shared had me think about you know, we've been conditioned to think that sex is a drive. Well, sex is not a drive. It's not something we need to survive. Right. There's no exactly. Right? There's no physical damage that happens from not feeding your sexual desire. Instead, sex is an incentive motivation system, right? It's being pulled by an attractive external stimulus for the most part. And so I think what we're trying to do here is we're trying to fight against the myth of sex as a drive. The myth. Yes, there it yeah. is. Right? It's like if we think sex is a drive like hunger, then we might start giving it privilege that it doesn't deserve. But if, on the other hand, we treat it like like it is an incentive motivation system, might not the culture change? The myth of sex as a drive. Oh, I love it. You may have just saved the planet. This is ah. really, it's a really big fight. 
thought. I love it. We are coming to the top of the hour, and I can't believe the show's over, and there's so much more to say. But what do you want to leave us with today, Joseph? A couple of parting thoughts and some inquiries, maybe, that you feel are important for us. Yeah, I would, I would want people to allow themselves to feel pleasure in all the ways that they feel pleasure, to remove gender from that, to remove sexuality, but how in their daily life are they feeling pleasure? And then that in its sense of sexuality, it might be feeling pleasure when they're making a, a nourishing meal at home. It might be feeling pleasure when they're creating art or when they're walking through nature or down the street or in a dance class. And can they start to allow that to be alive in them without it needing to have a direction or an outcome? Allow that sense of libido, that aliveness, to be present within themselves. Mm. Would be my hope. Would be my hope. And I'm going to just ask you to drop in one level deeper, more specific. How might somebody begin to do that? Like, I, I remember I couldn't even say the word pleasure. It made mm -hmm. me cringe, literally. I yeah. remember where I was in Gabrielle Roth's class. I had a big aha. It was about 18, 15, 18 years ago, and it was a big moment, pleasure. I felt sick to my stomach and so filled with shame. Right? Where can, where can we start? Give us an exercise, something we might do to practice, find our portal into this experience of pleasure. Yeah. So I think uh, pleasure is a perception of the sensation, and perception is context-dependent, right? So if I would invite individuals to find somewhere that they feel comfortable and safe, feeling whether they're seated, their sit bones connected to the chair, if they're standing, their feet connected to the floor beneath them, and to really feel that sense of weight in their body, their sense of mass and density. And in that, to begin to bring their attention to their breath. And the hope is that if they're feeling grounded and they're feeling connected to the earth, that if anything arises that might feel foreign or pleasurable or a sensation that might feel good uh, or disarming, that they have a sense of connection to the earth or a sense of their weight that will keep them present. But I find that if I just am with my breath in these very calm, still, safe places, there's a lot of sensation that happens, and I get to choose the sensations that I pay attention to. And so choosing different sensations that feel comfortable to them or safe enough to explore with the breath, with feeling their sense of weight in the chair or the floor beneath them. Beautiful. Cultivating that dual awareness, right? Yes. So we don't yes. have to get lost or too reactive or shut down, just noticing both things are possible at the same time. Gorgeous. And as are you, my friend. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. So, thank you so much for joining us today, Joseph. Uh, it's been very illuminating, intimate, and courageous. Um, happy to have you with us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I can see you smiling there. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to break. I'm going to be back for our wrap. Thanks again, Joseph, and everybody else to type. We'll be back in just a minute. Do you have relationship questions? I wish my past relationships didn't affect my relationships now to the point that I project them onto my partner. I'm perpetually single. What does that mean? 
You know, I've been single for 15 years, and at this point, I can hardly even imagine what intimacy and total connection would even feel like. The part of my relationship with a man that I've had in my life for so many years that keeps me here and present is that the relationship is not just about me, about us. We come in at 50-50, and it feels so good when you can help that other person move forward, and they can help you. To get answers to your relationship questions, call in to Real-Time Relationships with Marianne Camarado every fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on HealthyLife.net. You're listening to CHSR Real Radio on the web. What an interesting inquiry brings up an awful lot, our sexuality, a lot to consider. Hopefully you've got a therapist, a practitioner, a support person, someone you trust, know, and love that you can share some of these inquiries with. For sure, hope your relationship with the divine is something that's important to you. That's also a very important way to contemplate our really big questions like this. We hope you join us next time right here on Real-Time Relationships. You can go to MaryAnnCamarado.com to listen to the repeat broadcast as well as um, HealthyLife.net Radio. Next time for our lineup, uh, you can sign up for our newsletter, see who's on deck. Uh, We wish you every blessing and hope you take good care until we meet next time. 